So we are in multiple weeks now, I can't remember, week seven, week eight of Galatians, um, as we've been walking through this book that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, um, writing to the church, explaining to them they, they've had this struggle between ha- needing to have this idea with the Jewish people of saying, you must follow the law to have salvation, and Paul saying, no, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ that you receive salvation. And these Jewish believers are saying, no, you have to do this. To It's not only that, but it's keeping the law to obtain salvation. So they had this struggle between these two thought processes and, and belief systems. And Paul comes through and writes the book of Galatians to straighten this whole matter out. And it's something that we kind of see playing itself out in the church all throughout the centuries. And so what we've, Paul's unwrapped for us over these first four chapters of Galatians is telling them it is not the law. You do not justify yourself by the law. Why? Because we all break the law. Maybe you don't break it externally, but Christ came through and said, if you do it internally. If you think that thought, you have been a transgressor of the law, which means that we have all broken all Ten Commandments. There's no way for any of us to keep the law, which is why we need Jesus so desperately. So I think the question is asked at this point, what happens to the law? Why do we need the law? Paul shows us in Galatians 5 that it is the Holy Spirit, that it is absolutely essential for spiritual growth and how we are to access the power and the presence of the Spirit. Today's passage is going to be a very, very familiar passage for us. It's Paul lists out the fruit of the Spirit. And the problem with a familiar passage sometimes is that it goes in one ear and out the other, and you can miss really what Paul is trying to teach. But this passage is so vital for us in our walk Uh, as believers. So let's start out in uh, chapter 5, verse 1 this morning. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. What did Christ set us free for? Freedom. The freedom for what? What's he talking about? He's talking about the freedom of love. When you love to do something, you don't need to be commanded to do it, do you? I can remember as a kid, I loved playing basketball. A few weeks ago, I gave you the illustration of hating to play the piano. I had to be forced. My mom had to set a law down for me to practice the piano. She didn't have to to set a law down for me to go play basketball. That was my reward for finishing my piano, was to go outside, and I had a backstop in my driveway, and I could play till it got dark. And even after dark, we had spotlights. I could play even at night, and my neighbors didn't care because they were far enough away. It was wonderful. You don't have to be commanded to do something that you love. Last week we talked about the dilemma of the great commandment. We are commanded to do something that by definition cannot be commanded. Because if you love something, you don't need a command to do it. And if you don't love it, no command is going to change your heart. I used the rather gross analogy last week. And it was fun watching some of your faces kind of like turn and discuss as we talked about the, uh, the idea of, a, of vomit. You do not need to be commanded not to eat it. 
because none of us love it. Instinctively, you avoid it. If you encounter a pile of it on the sidewalk, you do not see how close you can actually get to without touching it, do you? No, you stay far, far away from it because it is disgusting. We don't need that command because it is disgusting. We talked about that is how God looks at our sin. A holy God looks at our sin that way. But on the other hand, I've never been commanded, or I don't need a command, to eat a steak. Because I love it. You put one in front of me, and I will take care of that for you. So God's desire is to change your heart so that we love him without being commanded to do so. See where I'm going with this? So obeying the great commandment feels like freedom. He does that through faith in the gospel. So Paul says, stand firm in that faith. Do not go back to the law because there is not freedom in the law. Verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Remember in week one, the, the Jewish people were saying, you must be circumcised to be a believer. And all the Gentile believers were saying, no, we're not going down that path. And Paul says, no, you do not need to keep the law of circumcision to be a believer. That was the big sticking point here. And what Paul's going back to here in verse 2, he's saying circumcision is a representation of the law. He's saying, if you do that, Christ is no advantage to you. Because you're looking to the law instead of the finished work of Christ for salvation. Verse 6, let's skip down. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. God's whole goal in you is a new heart that loves right things. A heart that hates the spiritual vomit of sin, and it loves the stake of righteousness, loves that good juiciness of righteousness. That love is produced not by going through a list of what you must do, but by soaking up the truth of what God has done for us. That love comes by faith in the gospel. So let's skip down to verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. So he, Paul is going to go on, he's going to give us a list of 16 characteristics here. And many commentators call these the decaying fruits of the flesh. He just gave us three here because of our depravity often reveals itself more in the idea of the sexual realm more than anything else. He said sexual immorality. The actual Greek word here is pornea. We recognize that word, which means any sexual intercourse between someone that is not a husband and a wife. That is what he's referring to here. Moral impurity is the other thing he references here, which means unnatural sexual relations. Then sensuality, which means an uncontrolled sexual desire. The next two words that he re refers to here have to do with corrupted religion that come out of a depraved heart. Idolatry is what he says in verse 20, where you love other things more than God. 
sorcery, where you try to manipulate God through a good luck charm, a ritual, or some kind of word of faith teaching is what the, the root of sorcery means. And then Paul gives eight words to, rela- to give us to s- relational conflicts. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. And then he gives there at the end three words that kind of deal with substance abu- abuse. He says drunkenness, orgies, and, or anything similar. You know, where you need a hit or some kind of release of dopamine in order to feel alive, whether that comes from alcohol, drugs, pornography, impulsive buying, or even something as simple as living for likes on Facebook or social media. The point is your soul feels empty and dead and bored and it needs that hit. Whatever that hit is that works for you, you need that to feel alive. Paul finishes this part of the chapter. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those that do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. When he says those who do such things, here he means a habitual practice, not an infrequent, I struggled, I I fell into temptation, but something, a repentant, a non-repentant heart that is continually driving and living their life for these things that he mentions here. If you delight in these things, if you pursue these things, if these are the things that you're living your life for, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he transitions from the fruits of the flesh to the fruit of the Spirit. When you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, this is what you have. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. A genuine love toward God as the greatest treasure. Joy. Joy is a delight in God for the sheer beauty of his presence. And joy is the opposite of happiness. A lot of times people take joy and happiness as synonyms, and they're not. Happiness is where you depend on circumstances to make you happy. The difference in happiness and joy, or think of it this way, happiness is based on the blessing and joy is knowing the blesser. You guys get the difference there? Happiness is based on your circumstance or the blessing, and joy is knowing the blesser. Peace. Peace is when your soul feels at rest and the control of a loving, sovereign God. And this is a great list Paul's giving us. Patience. The ability to face troubles or setbacks without going into despair. Or blowing up in anger because you trust in God's loving, perfect plan for your life. Man, think about what we've just been through this past year. A lot of us struggled through this patience, didn't we? Knowing that God was in control. Kindness is the disposition to take care of others, even when it costs you. Always being moved by their needs. Taking on someone else's burdens. Goodness. Goodness means integrity. You are the same person through and through. Faithfulness means consistent loyalty to do or say what is right, even when it's inconvenient or unpopular. Gentleness can be defined as humility or self-forgetfulness. In the great words of the the writer C.S. Lewis, he says, it's not thinking less of yourself as much as thinking of yourself 
less. Do you guys see that? I love the way he said that. It's not thinking less of yourself as much as thinking of yourself less. Who do we naturally think about the most? Me, myself, and I. We think about ourselves more than we think about anybody else around us. Gentleness is switching that paradigm. It's going outward instead of inward. How can I help you? How can I be a blessing to you? Self-control, Paul goes, the last thing he says there, is the ability to bring whatever desire you have under the control of God's will. These nine things describe the character of a Christian. Then he concludes, I would say, rather cheekily in this last part. He says, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Why does he say against such things there is no law? Because people that exhibit these characteristics, they don't need a law. They don't need one. No one gets put in jail for being too kind, for being too loving, to being too gentle or faithful or self-controlled. So what have we learned? When you look at this list that Paul gave to us, what, what can we learn for our lives? I think three things. The, the scoop on the fruit. Number one, healthy fruit comes from deep roots. Most important, you do not grow fruit by focusing on the fruits. Fruit happens naturally when the roots are deep and healthy. A lot of times in Florida, you plant an orange tree. My dad would plant orange trees in the backyard, and many of them died because the fruit, the fruit or the, the root system never got deep enough to take hold didn't get the water, the proper nutrients, and it never produced the fruit because the roots weren't deep enough. The more you embrace God's love as your root system in your life digs down into God's love and the promise of the gospel, the more spiritual fruit will happen just naturally in your life. Already, as I've been, as I gave you all this list, I'm sure some of you thought, oh, I'm so bad at that one. I have no love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. Definitely not self-control. And maybe you thought, man, I need to work on some kindness this week. Maybe you had that thought. What you should do is look at Jesus instead of yourself. Look at Jesus because he says, in Christ, I am righteous. He says, there is therefore no condemnation. In Christ, we are precious to him. Not one hair falls from our heads. So precious are we to him that he poured out his blood on our behalf. In Christ, I am no longer a slave, but as we talked about last week, we are now sons and daughters, adopted sons and daughters of him. Not a slave, but a son. Not an orphan, but blessed with every spiritual blessing in high places. Filled with all the fullness of God. In Christ we are blessed to be a blessing predestined for good works that I should go and walk in them. So as you drive your roots deeper in God and his word and his love for you, the fruit naturally 
produces. So number one, healthy fruit comes from deep roots. Number two, you're only as mature as your most immature fruit. Think about that for a second. You're only mature as your most immature fruit. When you first read Paul's letter to the Galatians, your first thought, you, you may have looked at it, and if you're an English person, this may have been your thought. But Paul says in verse 22, fruit, the singular, is, and then he gives a plural list. Does anybody catch that? You think, oh, man, his English is off there. The fruit of the Spirit is, like the, 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 uh, verb, the subject-verb disagreement there. Why does he not say the fruit of the Spirit or the fruits of the Spirit are? Why is there that different? Why doesn't he say that? It's because these are not separate virtues you staple onto your life, but they are a collective evidence of Christ in you. And if he's in you, they will all appear, which, makes, which means you are really only as mature as your most immature fruit because that shows how deep the transforming gospel has really penetrated your life. You see, sometimes we confuse personality traits with spiritual fruit. Some Christians we might look at and say they are more stoic by nature. And so we look at them and say, oh, that person, they have lots and lots of patience, but they are not joyful or kind. Or some Christian who is really gentle and kind to others, but they're silent when it comes to sharing the faith that they hold about Christ. They're not bold telling others about Jesus. That means these are just likely personality traits, not gospel fruit. Where Jesus is, all the fruit grow as one. When he is in there, you will be bold and kind, gentle and compassionate, patient and joyful. Therefore, I can say you are only as mature in your faith as your immature fruit because they all come together. And so when you observe an area where you are fruitless, this is an area that you have yet to believe the gospel in your life. Because we believe the gospel penetrates every aspect of your life. So if you're struggling in one life, it's a, or one area of your life, it's evidence that you have yet to believe the gospel is able to change that area. You're holding on to it, saying, oh, I can't let this go. Allow the gospel to take root and the fruit to come forth. Number three, walking the Spirit is a way to avoid the lust of the flesh, but not vice versa. Verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Notice the order here. It's not escape the lust of the flesh, and then you'll be filled with the Spirit. That's not the order. That's how most of us see it. We see, if I avoid these sins, I'll stay filled with the Spirit. If I can just avoid all of these sins that I struggle with. But Paul says, walking in the Spirit comes first. That's because without the Spirit you'll never be able to say no to the lust of the flesh. The Spirit must come first. The word in verse 16, desire, in the Greek is interesting because that word means an inordinate craving where you feel like you need something to be alive. It goes back to what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden. 
when Adam and Eve first sinned, they were stripped of the love and acceptance of God, so their souls filled, felt naked. And they, what did they do? They looked for clothing because they felt the nakedness because of their sin in the garden. Or as Blaise Pascal put it, without God, our souls are like a gigantic vacuum. We're looking for things, and as we turn to, first to the flesh to fill that vacuum, we look to the things of the fruit of the flesh that we walk to. That's what our souls automatically look to. We want to fill that vacuum with the fleshly desires, thinking that that is what is going to satisfy me. But it doesn't. The way to escape these cravings is being reunited by God, with God, by walking in the Spirit. And until you do, your attempts to control the flesh will be futile. Will continually fail. Your desires are too strong. The problem is the presence of your God is so weak in your life. You need a larger dose of the Spirit's, of the, the Spirit's presence in your life. And so how do you receive the power of the Spirit? I've said it every week. I've said it every week. By daily believing, it is finished. The first time you believed it is finished, you were released from the penalty of sin. As we continue to believe that message day after day after day, preaching that gospel message to our souls, you release from the power of sin by the Spirit. The more you soak yourself in the love of Jesus, the more these fruits will naturally appear. Why? Because you can't experience Jesus and not develop these things. Think about these fruit of the Spirit with the lens of Jesus, love. The greatest act of love in the history of mankind was Jesus sacrificing himself for us on a cross. When you believe that, you become loving toward others. Joy. Jesus is our joy because he wouldn't let his joy be complete until we were included in it. He was willing to endure pain. So we were his joy because we were his joy. Peace. Jesus is our peace because he wouldn't be at peace until he had purchased our peace. He trusted the Father even when the Father sent him to the cross, which included our salvation. He is our peace. Patience. How many times could, we, could he have walked away from us? How many times on this earth could he have said, I'm not going to do it? The great songwriter said, even on the cross, he could have called down 10,000 angels to stop the horror, but he didn't because of his patience and his kindness. He never turned away anyone in need. He weeps with us in our pain. He hurts when we hurt. When, when I confess my sin to him or cry out for help, he doesn't scold or lecture me. He comes to us with arms open wide because of his kindness his goodness he is good all the time and all the time he is good his faithfulness he always told us the truth and he never gave up on us ever why because he is faithful 
gentleness. Has there ever been anyone who thought less about his needs and focused on others? Self-control. At any point, he could have lashed out at Pharisees, to unbelievers who rejected him, but he demonstrated such great control all the way to the cross. He was all of these things for you and for me. And for those of us that have accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, his spirit is now working in and through us to produce these fruit, which means if you're going to memorize this list, memorize it less as a list of things you should do and more of as a description of who Jesus is for you and how we should reflect Jesus to the world. And as you do, Sin's grip and sin's hold will loosen in your life because it is finished, released us from the penalty of sin. But as we continue to believe it is finished, the power of sin will lose its grip on your life. And as that grip of sin is gone, the fruit of the Spirit comes forth. Let's pray.